The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. The following program is a PodcastOne.com production. He's a world champion wrestler, best-selling author, actor, and lead singer of Fozzie. Now, now he's rocking the podcast world. Marvelous. This, this, this is Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho. Starring Chris Jericho. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. This is the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And it's Friday. It's The remedy for boredom has arrived. This is the PayPal's podcast. Let's go for a ride. Mississippi Queen, you know what I mean? Mississippi Queen, you know what I mean? Yeah, this is talk. Is Jericho is Mountain? In the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I don't know, but I was there last night, and I'm going to give you a full report next week about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Plus, we're going to have Oates' mustache on to discuss his induction with Hall & Oates and all of the debauchery and stories and adventures and tales that happened behind the scenes at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Now, the most pressing issue, i got to get right into this. i got to talk about this. i actually got to tell you guys a little secret. I came in to do the intro for this show on Tuesday afternoon. Tuesday night, I found out via a text that Ultimate Warrior had passed away. Uh, Just crushing, obviously, so shocking for me as it was to so many others. So I had to come back into the studio on Wednesday and recut the beginning because we have to talk about about what happened. Um, Basically, after 18 years... Ultimate Warrior and Vince McMahon buried the hatchet. They uh, uh, made amends and agreed to have Warrior appear at the Hall of Fame. He did appear at the Hall of Fame. He was the headliner of the 2014 class of the WWE Hall of Fame. And at that Hall of Fame, he did a big, long 40-minute speech, kind of rambling all over the place, but basically being the Warrior and, and said... You know how much he he was vindicated, um, and how much how happy he was to be back in the WWE. Because if you remember, about ten years ago, there was a DVD that was released called "The Self Destruction of the Ultimate Warrior," 
And they had a lot of us. I remember I made a lot of comments, and some of them were kind of derogatory towards the warrior uh, on on behalf of you know the orders that were given. Like, you know, we don't want to talk nice about this guy. So they had so many problems with the warrior, they actually released a DVD completely burying him. And Warrior was very happy that after all these years, he was finally able to come back and, like I said, get vindicated for all these. I'm sure there was some reasons for it, but whatever the real issues were between him and Vince were, were hammered out and, and buried. And Warrior announced that he had a multi-year deal as an ambassador for the WWE. He looked great. He was sounding great. He was giving uh, huge love to his wife and, and daughters in the front row that were, I think, 11 years old and 8 years old. And then the next night at WrestleMania, he comes out in a suit looking very dapper once again, gets announced at the Superdome. Everyone's cheering, going nuts for the Warrior. And then on Raw, after 18 years, the first time in 18 years, he comes out on Raw and cuts a promo, starts out in his suit, then puts on one of those Warrior duster jackets and puts on an Ultimate Warrior mask with the makeup and does a Warrior promo and announces that you know he's excited to be back and all the fans are really the ones that are responsible for the Ultimate Warrior's uh uh, rise and and for the Ultimate Warriors, you know, legacy, and then he says some real chilling things. He talked about uh, guys, uh, a man breathing his last breath and his a man's heart beating its last beat. Let's listen exactly to what the Warrior had to say on Raw just four days ago. Well then, you shut up, Warrior, and let me do the talking. <laughs> No WWE talent becomes a legend on their own. Every man's heart one day beats its final beat. His lungs breathe their final breath. And if what that man did in his life makes the blood pulse through the body of others and makes them bleed deeper in something than larger than life, then his essence His spirit will be immortalized by the storytellers, by the loyalty, by the memory of those who honor him and make the running the man did live forever. You, 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 you are the legend makers of Ultimate Warrior. In the back, I see many potential legends, some of them with warrior spirits, and you will do the same for them. You will decide if they lived with the passion and intensity, so much so that you will tell your stories and you will make them legends as well. I am Ultimate Warrior. You are the Ultimate Warrior fans. And the spirit of Ultimate Warrior will run forever. Wow. I mean, that's just chilling. That was his last speech he ever gave on Raw 18 years after being gone. I mean, like it's, it's almost like something you'd see in a movie. You know, guy has problems, buries the hatchet, comes back, Hall of Fame, WrestleMania, speech on Raw, and then passes away the next day. I mean, I feel so bad for his family, his wife, her name is Dana, their daughters, young daughters, I think they're 11 years old and and 8 years old, going from the greatest weekend 
of their father's life in a lot of ways to the next day passing away. I mean, he died a happy man, which is the goal for all of us. But what a what a tragic story. I mean, my goodness, I just couldn't believe it. And, you know, you heard the warrior talking, and for anybody that grew up when I did in the, in the 80s, I mean, the late 80s when I was a huge wrestling fan, the warrior was the guy. Like, I was a Hogan guy and a Steamboat guy, but then suddenly Warrior comes out, and he's just massive. Remember how, how jacked he was, how much charisma he had, how much intensity and energy. He had long hair. He looked like a like a heavy metal dude, which I was. His music was heavy. You heard a little snippet of it. And then he'd run out from the back and jump in the ring and hit the ropes back and forth and shake the ropes with this intensity. He would blow himself up by the time he the match started, but that was that was half of, of his appeal. You didn't need the Ultimate Warrior to be a great worker. You just needed him to have that entrance. I mean, that was the best thing. I remember I saw him live in Winnipeg. He did the entrance. He came in the ring. He shook the ropes, ran back and forth. Andre the Giant, he beat him in, in a minute. Uh, I think it was like 30 seconds, actually. Andre was in there. He hit the ropes a couple times, jumped, gave him a big tackle, splashed him, pinned him one, two, three, and then ran right out of the ring. And I was like... I can't believe that, like, first of all, like, that was the main event? Like, like what? And two, oh my gosh, he beat Andre the Giant in 30 seconds. He's the ultimate warrior. And he had such an appeal to everybody. Guys like Miz loved the ultimate warrior, and Ziggler, and Steve Austin, and Triple H. Uh, Zach Wild, huge Ultimate Warrior fan. We used to talk about the Ultimate Warrior all the time. I mean, I was talking to Zach about the Ultimate Warrior and to Triple H about the Ultimate Warrior earlier in the day on Tuesday, just how awesome it was to see him back and how cool it was. You know, there's a great picture that Stephanie posted on the Twitter of Vince and Ultimate Warrior in a big hug backstage before Raw. It's just such a such a, a tragic story. Um you know, I think everybody's shocked. Like, you just can't believe it. I mean, it'd be different if he hadn't seen him for a while or somebody. He had just gotten back into the groove, gotten back into the spotlight. And, you know, I mean, it's just it's just horrible. And I my I only met Warrior once. This was back in about 97, 98 in WCW. Now, Hogan beat Warrior uh, uh, during this little feud that they had. It was just a mini feud because the rumor was that at WrestleMania 6, which is still one of the best matches of all time, if you haven't seen it, go watch it. Ultimate Warrior versus Hulk Hogan. It was championship versus championship, and it's when Warrior beat Hogan and passed the torch, so to speak. And Warrior at that point, there was two great matches that Warrior was involved in. That was one of them. The other one was the WrestleMania, maybe the year after, or a couple years after, versus uh, Randy Savage. That was another amazing match. And I think that was the retirement match for Savage, quote-unquote. So then... The rumor was that Hogan brought Warrior in because he wanted to get his his win back in WCW, and they had this ridiculously, it was just a horrible uh, feud. I remember remember that Warrior came in from the trap door under the ring, and they never told any of us, any of the other wrestlers, that there was a trap door. Disco Inferno hurt himself on that trap door. Davey Boy Smith got a really bad injury from, from falling on that trap door. Uh, it's the famous promo where Hogan's looking in the mirror, and he sees Ultimate Warrior behind him in the mirror and turns around, and he's not there, and it's like... You know, how do you see something in the mirror and, you know, only you can see it, but we can all see it too. It was just really dumb. But anyways, the point being, I met the Warrior and two things stand out. One, I went and said hi to him, obviously, as a, as a huge Ultimate Warrior fan growing up as a teenager. And he said, oh, oh, Chris Jericho, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of your work. You're doing a great job. And I was, I couldn't believe it. Like, me? You're talking to me? Because I was a nobody at the time. It was back when I was in WCW. I might have just turned heel or I might not even. Like Either way, I was not one of the upper echelon guys. 
and no top guys would ever really acknowledge my existence. But Warrior was really sweet. I mean, much like when I met Axel Rose, you always hear these horror stories about these guys. Yet with Axel and Warrior, they were nothing but the best. And I'll never forget him giving me that compliment because for me at that time, that meant a lot that he said that to me. And then I remember watching him in catering and he ate very clean, you know, very clean foods. And he, when he was done, he went and grabbed a chocolate chip cookie and he crumpled it up into his hand. And then he took a big smell of it and then he threw it away. And I was like, what is he doing? Like, what is that? And I asked somebody, it might've been Nash or Hall, like, what is he doing? He's like, that's how he has dessert. He smells the cookie, which gives him the same sensation as eating it. And then he throws it away. So he's not getting any of the calories or the fat or the sugars, but he's getting the same sensation. Just like, all right, whatever. He was born James Helwig and then changed his name to the warrior. That's actually what it said on his birth certificate and, and, and driver's license and, It'll say that on his death certificate, Warrior. So, um, you know, we heard sporadic appearances from him over time. And like I said, you know, such a legendary character that just basically disappeared after a while and finally had just come back uh, and then now has passed away. So RIP to the Ultimate Warrior. Uh, do me a favor. Go onto the WWE Network or go on YouTube and, and watch some, some Ultimate Warrior interviews. They were... Out there, psychedelic, completely un- unintelligible sometimes. Didn't make sense, but they're always cool. And we'll always remember the intensity of the Ultimate Warrior. The amazing, amazing matches he had. We're talking four and a half, five-star matches against Hulk Hogan and Randy Macho Man Savage. And then, of course, for me, for Chris Jericho, I'll always remember the, that five minutes that I spent with him and the kind words he gave me that let me know that even though nobody was giving me any, I guess, respect in WCW from the upper echelon that, that one of my favorites and one of my favorite characters of all time and one of the greatest of all time as far as captivating the audience had given me a, a small slight thumbs up and it meant a lot to me and it, and it always has and, and I kind of wish that I would have went to the Hall of Fame and would have been able to told them that in person so we're going to miss you Warrior there will never be another one like you rest in peace we got Dave Mustaine from Megadeth coming up, and later on, we're going to take your calls to talk about the Ultimate Warrior. So go to at Talk is Jericho on the Twitter, check out the number, and give me a call. Dave Mustaine first, and then it's all your thoughts about the passing of the Ultimate Warrior. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Talk is Jericho. On the line with me right now, my old friend Dave Mustaine is here. What's going on, Dave? Hey, bud. I'm just uh, enjoying the California sunshine. <laughs> awesome. Are you down in San Diego? How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I'm really uh, happy I get a chance to talk to you. you got so much stuff uh, that you've done that's so cool in the past, but this is something that's really kind of uh, kind of piqued my interest in what you have going on. April 12th in San Diego, you are playing 
with the San Diego Symphony, but it's not Megadeth and the Symphony. It's just you. How how did yep. you decide to do this? And what an amazing uh, set list that you've already kind of promised that you're going to be playing. Well, I've always thought that, that classical music was super cool. There's a lot of people that listen to it and, and are familiar with the songs, but sometimes they think of the more happier songs. I like the stuff that's in the movies when, you know, the the bad guy's ready to die or, you know, the Cinderella's <laughs> going to, you know, have something bad happen, the poison apple, the wolf, you know, all that kind of stuff. The music always gets scary. Right. And there's a lot of really cool parts in classical music that the lead violin does, too. Those guys have the ability to blow your mind if you actually took the instrument that they're playing and swapped it with an electric guitar. An example, Randy Rhodes. Mm-hmm. Those solos were some of the most melodic, beautiful solos ever heard. Perfect, especially like during Die of a Madman or Revelation, Mother Earth. Those are very classical. Totally, totally. Classically influenced. So, yeah, yeah, it is funny because when you talk about those old kind of Disney films, like when they're going to eat the poison apple and it's very ominous type of of music. So how how do you take that to what you do and then go in front of a a whole symphony? Like, how do you decide what you're going to be playing? Those are the parts that uh, seem to be the, the most popular questions. You know, how do we pick it, and, mm-hmm. and what's it going to be like on stage? Now, the, the thing I'm, I'm uh, about picking the songs and, and how we did the program, Vivaldi, uh, his nickname, believe it or not, was the Red-Headed Priest, which has been bearing <laughs> on us choosing it. But, you know, the two songs, Summer and Winter, are two of the more memorable classical pieces, and the violin pieces in them are just, just mind-blowing. Uh, we're also doing a piece called Air by, by Bach, and uh, although it's not real fast ripping, it's very melodic and shows the true ability that you know heavy metal artists have. Mm-hmm. This isn't about Dave Mustaine. This is about flying the flag for us as a metal community and saying, we matter, we can do this stuff. Now, not all of us can, but mm-hmm. you know, I think that if you put your mind to it, anybody can do it. Well, especially for you, because you've always had that sort of vibe. And I think another thing that... that people that aren't musicians don't realize sometimes that what musicians like to do is play music with other musicians, you know, and I'm sure it's great to to play in Megadeth for 30 plus years and all the great stuff that you've done, but to play with classical musicians, it must be pushing you as a, as an artist and as a player as well. It's very intimidating, Chris, you know, the, I'm sure, you know, yourself being a musician that, you know, it's, it's one thing being able to go out there and dance around and have fun and yeah, 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 and hey, how you doing, that kind of stuff. But <laughs> when you're sitting on a chair and you're next to somebody who is at least as good as you or better, <laughs> and every way you look is somebody that's that level or better on their perspective instruments, it's kind of like, oh, man, <laughs> please let this be the best night of my life. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, that's, you bring up a good point, because when you do a Megadeth show, I mean, you're Dave Mustaine. You, you, you know, you come on stage and that's your people and they're going nuts to see you, your band, your music and your playing. Now you're kind of almost going into unknown territory where you're going to be sitting with, you know, thousands or however many of the people there are in there. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of Megadeth fans, but there's going to be a lot of classical music fans going what does this guy know? He's just a heavy metal guitar player. I'm, you know what I mean? True. There, are, there's going to be scoffers, but you know, there's scoffers in my own house. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And, and I, <laughs> I think that's the beauty of life. You know, you got to have a sense of humor, and you got to know that there's going to be people that don't like you in life. Man, you know, if I got bent out of shape over the people that don't like when I say something, you know, I, I better pack a lunch because I'm going to be spending a lot of time worrying over it. And I think the cool thing about the the symphony is that the, there are going to be people that are, are there to you know watch the symphony that mm-hmm. don't know who I am. And that's, there are people who have a subscription as donors that have their seats, and they're going to probably go, man, I don't want to go see this. This is too scary. And and in a sense, they're probably going to be right because there's going to be a lot of people in the audience that aren't classical, mm-hmm. music, symphonic, regular attenders. You know, they're going to be in there, and they're going to want to light up a cigarette, or they're going to have their <laughs> cameras rolling. And, you know, there's just two different kind of worlds. So... I'm actually pretty interested in how these two worlds are going to collide. Well, and we have kind of seen it before. I mean, you mentioned Rhodes, and obviously Malmsteen's been doing that sort of thing for years. And um, did you know these pieces? Blackmore. Yeah, of course, absolutely. Did Did you know uh, Summer and Winter? And did you know uh, the Bach piece that you're playing? Oh, I had to learn them. Wow. I, I I knew them from listening to them, but you know, listening to a melody and then having to work it out with your fingertips is quite different. <laughs> you know, especially the fact that I've had nerve damage done to my left hand twice. Uh, twice it's been completely numb, and and uh, first time was something that was a result of sleeping on it wrong. The second time was from the surgery uh, from my neck, and and right. uh, you know, my little fingers still numb at some points it hmm. it's either is completely numb or is throbbing and with pain and and it's it kind of goes where it wants sometimes yeah you know so <laughs> so it may be a little bit of some uh vivaldi jazz that night <laughs> sure it's a little improv <laughs> did, did you have to kind yeah, of but you know what the cool thing is it's such a beautiful song there and, and so many people do their own uh, impression of it so uh, I think that you know, t- just the supporting cast of the orchestra, San Diego Symphony is one of the best in, in the nation. I mean, mm-hmm. there are some fabulous symphonies. I'm sure they would all say that theirs is the best. But, you know, uh, th- these guys also have a very, very cool attitude, you know, very much like you and I, very laid back. Mm-hmm. And when it's time to turn it on, man, it's like stand back or you're... Yeah. But but like you said though, I mean, you still are playing with a band, and that's the cool thing is that you're going to be you know ingratiating yourself with a bunch of other musicians. And you know, I, it's funny. I saw um, Alex. No Megadeth, just me. Yeah, I know that's what I mean. A bunch of other musicians in the San Diego Symphony, though. I mean, it's just you and musicians, so it still is that band of musicians, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I misunderstood. I thought you meant band like my guys in the band. No, the, the, that the, would be cool, but uh, no, this is so much more beautiful. The, the, and, and you know what? I have seen a lot of really cool. Uh, impressions of people doing metal versions of this stuff. So at some point, who knows, man, this may be something that opens up a whole new world for guys like you and me. Oh, absolutely. I, I was going to say, I went to the Iridium Ballroom in New York City a couple years ago and saw Alex Skolnick's Jazz Trio, and they did jazz versions of metal songs, and that was completely amazing to hear. So this is kind of, you know, a symphony version of metal, a jazz version of metal. It just, it, musicians are musicians, and you're more than... than you know, capable of doing this, and that's why I think it's so it's so interesting, and, and it's going to be so cool to watch this. Now, when, when oh, you thanks, were man. when you were a kid, did you listen to classical music, or were you just a rock guy? A little bit, a little bit, not yeah. too much. Uh, again, like I was saying, you know, listening to the stuff that my sisters listened to uh, versus what I was listening to, watching kid movies and stuff. You know, they listened to Motown and really cool stuff. That's why Megadeth has a lot of that that funky kind mm. of rhythm to it. You know, yeah. when I left Metallica, it would have been really easy to continue in that same vein, but I didn't I didn't want to copy them because I didn't want to, you know, people to think that, you know, 
that uh, it was going to be that kind of ACDC crocus kind of thing. You know what I mean? Right, right, so, right, right. Uh, I was able to really rely on a lot of those interesting time signatures, a little bit more swing, so that's why there's a little bit more of a jazzy feel in some of those first records. Mm-hmm. Well, even when you talk about, you know, your first record comes out and you cover, you know, these boots are made for walking, not exactly the most metal of songs, right? Nope. That's what I mean, and that's kind of the reason why you did that. Or even some of the blues stuff that you did, like Ain't Superstitious on uh, on uh, Peace Cells. I mean, that was was it was it something that you did completely, uh, you know, a, a complete mindset change when, when you left Metallica? Did you want to, I mean, you're still Dave Mustaine. You still do that the best. But did you, you, you mentioned you wanted to distance yourself so you weren't seen kind of in the same box. Well, no, I, I don't. I don't want anybody to misinterpret when I say the word uh, distance, because I, I, you know, there, there's nothing but love from that cat now. Um, but it, it, you know, the reason that I chose these boots ran for walking was as a kid. I remember going to the lake when it was boiling hot summer, and and I have a picture ingrained in my mind of the car with the doors open and that song playing on the radio. And then, you know, growing up, learning about her dad and, and the alleged mob connections and stuff like that, and mm-hmm. the chairman of the board and all that kind of influence, it just seemed really cool and sexy to do that song. And then the thing with Ain't Superstitious, you know, we had done that based off of the Jeff Beck version, although he had done it based off the Willie Dixon version. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, a lot of the reasons that we choose the songs that we choose are, are for super deep reasons that, that, on the surface, to some people, they would think, like, you know, you've got too much time on your hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean that. But that's why it made it cool because it wasn't just the same thing. I mean, you could have easily covered, you know, a UFO song or something on those lines. But even even having you know Chris Poland when you when he when you first started, Megadeth, he was kind of almost kind of a more jazzier type of a player as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that was a uh, you know a period when you know Gar was in the band, and we really thought that you know Gar was a very interesting and cool player. Um, and having the band that, that he was in, uh, they were called the New Yorkers, and, mm-hmm. and um, definitely a jazz band. So, so it did bring a lot of different flavors to the band. Um, I, I'm definitely a, a, a guy that can appreciate jazz, but again, I don't really like the stuff that's, you know, I don't know, maybe it's just the way I'm wired or stuff, but if it's like super happy songs, like in major <laughs> scales and stuff, like the stuff you, you know, I, I, just another cartoon example when when I was a kid watching this cartoon called Sinbad, there was this little centaur named Pip. And uh-huh. Whenever he would walk around and stuff, it would be stuff like Badinere, that one, you know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of stuff. You know, man, I like the stuff that's like in your face, okay? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, totally. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> well, who, who did you listen? Who were your favorite guitar players when you were when you were growing up that influenced you? Well, I didn't really really get into rock guitar until I was a little bit older, but uh, around 13 was when I started to discover it. And, and you know, the, obviously it was the greats. It was uh, Jimmy Page and, and uh, Ace Frehley, and, and then going into some different uh, stuff as my tastes you know, expanded. Um, you know, the, actually the first couple of things I learned on guitar, I learned the bar chord from my my cousin, a guy named Johnny O'Dell, and, mm-hmm. and uh, who's no longer with us, he had shown me the, you know, the basic finger positions, and I was like, "That's cool." And, and I learned the song "Panic in Detroit" by David Bowie, and then I had a friend of mine show me a chord chord instead of a bar chord, and I learned the beginning of uh, "All the Young Dudes" mm, right? okay. by Mott Uppel. Yeah, and then I was off and running, and then it's like, "Okay, so now you're going to take on the classic Stairway to Heaven." And it's like, <laughs> Wow, 
you know, I mean, everybody learns that song, and rightly so. And, and you know, as my tastes developed, I got into people like Judas Priest. Of course, you mentioned UFO. Um, and, and, and then when the new wave of British heavy metal came out, that's, that's what really made me excited, like Brian Tatler and mm-hmm. Maiden and stuff like that. Well, and, and it almost th- th- led you guys to create Thrash. I mean, you know, that magical time in the early 80s when it was just basically Metallica and maybe kind of a little bit of Slayer. But your original lineup, what, what was it, how were you received when you guys first started playing with Metallica? You know, these super fast riffs and, you know, very fast drumming. Because nowadays, it's just the way it is. But when you first started playing that type of music, it was like listening to pure death metal now. Like, s- nobody had ever heard anything. You know what I mean? Like, it's so uh, normal now. But 30 years ago, it was like the craziest stuff you'd ever heard. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's great to be an originator. It's a cool thing. It reminds me of a story, though. I remember meeting Jello Biafra, the singer <laughs> of the Dead Kennedys, which is a band I love. And we were talking about doing a project together. I was doing this thing, uh, ended up using Lee Ving from Fear. But I wanted to have a punk rock singer, and he, go, and he showed up at this concert we were playing, and he was in a cast. I went, what happened to your foot, Jello? And he goes, man, I got beat up by punks at a club. Go figure, the grandfather of punk rock beaten up by punks and I, and I just thought that was so ironic and funny uh, you know I, for me it's like sometimes it doesn't really matter that you were the one that created it just just mm-hmm. the fact that it got created well, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and it was, I guess probably just the time, too. I mean, it was it was probably a pretty cool time. I, I, I ask uh, the few people that, that played in bands with him or, or knew him, tell us a little bit about Cliff Burton. I've always been a, a lifelong kind of a real huge fanatic for Cliff. Uh, what, are your, like, what kind of a dude was he and what kind of memories do you have of him? Well, sadly, I don't have a long list of memories, and I know that uh, you know, if you ask the other guys, Lars and James, they'd probably say the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, our time together was short. Right. The times that I remember, you know, it was it was very interesting. Cliff was one of those kind of guys that, you know, um, you know, like in the circus, you kind of see those bicycles that have weird-shaped rims. <laughs> yeah. The bike just kind of bounces up and down like that. That was him, and he did not go with the flow of society. He was his own person. And, you know, if it looked normal, he would look at it sideways to see why. You know, I mm-hmm. think he was a very analytical guy. Um, not really, uh, to me, uh, talker. I, I, I never heard him ever say a bad word about anybody. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really a particularly huge fan of the music that we listened to when we were riding back and forth to practice because it was quite a long ways, and, and uh, I... The good thing was he would play some Leonard Skinner in there, but right. there was a couple other bands he would play. There was oh my god, like what? I think I know where the I think I know where the term "pulling teeth" came from because that's what <laughs> it felt like listening to some of the stuff he was playing. And then you know, there's the the part about on stage that was just just so remarkable. You know, just because it was so outside. You know, you see these kids coloring that can't stay within the lines. That was Cliff, man. He he just pushed the boundaries. So you know. That's why In My Darkest Hour was birthed when I mm-hmm. found out he died. You know, I, I'd gotten a phone call from Maria Ferrero, and, you know, I, 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 one, I was kind of bent out of shape that, you know, the band didn't call me and tell me. Yeah. But more importantly was the loss of a friend, and, and um, I, I just I cried. I remember going downtown to Los Angeles with uh, Ellison and Poland and getting some... Uh, no, Poland was gone by then. 
Um, who was I with? Probably would be 86. So it, does, was it, it doesn't matter, but we Jeff went Young? downtown and, and no, I, I could have swore it was Chris. I think he was still living with us at the time for some reason. But uh, I, I might be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure Ellison will help clear that up. But <laughs> anyways, and, and coming back and just picking up my guitar and just crying and writing the whole song right there on the spot for In My Darkest Hour. So it was one of the only times in my career I've been able to write a song from beginning to end in one sitting. Wow, just all the way through. How do you write a lot of your songs? Do you keep like a riff tape or something like that? Uh, that, I write stuff down. I'll write words down. I'll write like you know, certain kind of, um, as silly as it sounds, syllabic kind of rhythmic kind of mutations and stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. in, case, in case I can't write it down and, and if there's no notation to it or any words, if it's just like a pattern, I'll, I'll write down what I think it would look like because you know, I'm self-taught, so I don't really know how to write sheet music. A lot of times it's just mm-hmm. squiggles and crap. Sure, right, right. As far as like the actual, yeah, the, the, the choral arrangements, forget that, but... Is, is, let me ask you when, you, when you first put together Megadeth, um, how, was, it, was it hard to put together the right lineup of guys? Or like, when, I mean, did you just try and get anybody that you can? Or like, how, how do you do that? Like back in those days when there was no internet and there was no you know, cell phones, were you putting up like an ad on the wall at the music store or something along those lines? <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember my, my whole journey. I got my job in Metallica from looking in the Recycler magazine. So mm-hmm. tip of the hat to the Recycler. Um, and not that it serves that same purpose anymore. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it even exists, yeah. Anymore. But uh, so, so that's how I found my job. And then when we would audition other people, we would, a lot of times we would you know, put out ads or leave things in, in guitar stores or just say word of mouth stuff. When we were looking for Marty Friedman, we did this really dastardly thing, David Ellison and I, but, you know, we we both were kind of, you know, mischievous like that. People think it was just me, but it was both of us. <laughs> we intentionally videotaped the interviews of the guys that we were going to uh, give an audition to, mm-hmm. and then we would play it back at fast speed with the volume off just to kind of see if they had any kind of nervous tics because, you know, you never really pick up on stuff like that. You know, Interesting. Some will flip their hair, or another guy will like kind of you know touch his nose a lot, or, or you know stuff like that. And and there was this one guy that we were watching cross his legs probably a hundred times in the five minutes that we were watching the video. So so that kind of stuff is really interesting and unique, and it would help us to you know look at a lot of the psychological stuff. Because when you're in a band together, man, you're with four people. It's yeah. like you know being you know, a polygamist and, and you, we, we, you know, you've got a, a bunch of, uh, I think that's the right word for it, right? We that's the right word. Wives. A bigamist, maybe. No, poly- uh, someone who's married yeah, to I a lot Polly's of chicks. One. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so three would be Polly, I think, I think, I think. So anyways, you know, you, you, easier way to put this, um, in case I'm wrong, it's like, you know, you, you buy a car, you, you expect all four tires to match, mm-hmm. you know, and after a while, you, you know, <laughs> either, either, just the way of the business. You know, somebody is going to sh- start shining as a musician. Very rarely. I mean, look, look at look at the two greatest bands of all time: Ringo, George, Paul, and John. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there definitely was a pecking order there. Same thing with Led Zeppelin. Right. Yeah. Right? We- there was a pecking order there. Now, some people would say the page was in the front. Some people would say plants in the front. Some people would even say the bottom control from the rear. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, for sure, it's undeniable that John and Paul were, you know, the, the Beatles, and George had a big part to play with it, and so did Ringo. But you know, 
same thing. There's a food chain. Well, and it's also why they broke up so early, you know, because you had a guy like George who was one of the greatest musicians of all time, one of the greatest songwriters, but his only problem was he was in a band with McCartney and Lennon. You're not going to get much. Reader, yeah. You know what I mean? You're going to be number three no matter yeah. what happens, right? And that's, that's yeah, yeah. yeah, putting together a band. And, and, you know, and you mentioned it too. Putting together a band is more than just the the players and the and the you know the how good they are etc cetera, etc cetera. you're going to spend the next 6 or 8 months of your life on a bus where you have to you know touch asses every time time you walk past each other there's going to be a you know there's a lot of personalities there that you got to keep in mind right right not you know? only that um you, uh, you, who whoever thinks you're going to be with somebody for 30 years most musicians don't even have a, a conception of being 30 years older than the moment that they have that thought because, you know, one of the things I think that is mistakenly synonymous with being a musician is that, you know, you don't know how long you're going to be here. So mm-hmm. revel in that, you know, unpredictability about life, you know, extended life. For me, I want to keep making music as long as I can. The reason I ever mentioned not playing anymore was because of what was going on in my neck. It was getting gradually worse and worse and worse and worse to the point where, you know, I couldn't even function without being on pain medicine, and it was it was horrible. So mm-hmm. once I got surgery and they had fused my neck together, before they put the the screws in, the guy was cleaning it out, and he found this this thing that looked like a rose thorn about that big. It was broken bone off one of my vertebrae that had broken off and was in my spinal cord. Oh, my goodness. And this is why he's doing the cleanup. Now, if he would have done the cleanup and not seen that, the whole surgery would have been for nothing because that was in there. That was what was causing it, besides the fact that the vertebrae was busted up. But I feel great now, and, and that's why the whole symphony thing came about. It's like, you know what? Maybe I won't be standing up. Maybe I'll be sitting down. Maybe maybe I'll be working in a studio. But I'll tell you what, the, the uh, pain from playing is, is gone, and, and it just feels a lot a lot more enjoyable to get up in, in the day and, and go out and start playing music. And, and just living your life, even. You know, there's nothing worse than having that, yeah, that yeah. those health issues, for sure. It messes up your whole your yeah, whole well, mindset. Music, uh, not to be a cliche, it is it is what I do. It's, it's my whole existence. So whenever I, I think about stuff, I kind of think in a kind of a silly realm of, you know, how does this correlate to being you know, a musician? But I guess that's what you want, right? If you know, yeah. somebody who's who's got a hobby at it, because I think it'll be evident in the stuff that they put out. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. You're listening to Talk is Jericho. Back on Talk is Jericho with my bud, Dave Mustaine. We were talking uh, just before the break, Dave, about you had your surgery and, and the, the bone chips and the bone spurs. Do you think that's from all of the, you know, the, the head banging that you've done over the years, for lack of a better term? I think it's from carrying around a, an exceptionally fat head. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it's definitely from the head banging. Um, there's, I can remember one time though, and and this isn't to cast any aspersions on you know 
osteopaths or chi- uh, chiropractors, but I had gotten an adjustment one time, and the guy had just, the guy I'd been going to for a long time, he said that he just went through a divorce, and he popped me one time, and he hurt me, and I was like, oh, man, that doesn't feel right. And, you know, he told me, take some Motrin and some ice, and you'll be fine, and I never quite was the same after that, so I'm kind of a little skittish about that, but, mm-hmm. you know, it, as far as, like, being in health and, and being ready to go right now, I got to tell you, it's it's funny, when you get those little things, it totally reminds me of that that crazy story we've heard as kids about the thorn in the lion's paw because it really wasn't that big of a piece of bone. Yeah. You know, it, it was the size of a rose thorn, but in your spinal cord. Oh, yeah, right. Exactly. But, you know, I, I, was, I mentioned that I had a herniated disc a few years ago, and, you know, it was brutal because you never knew when it was going to strike. And it fun, yeah. didn't matter what I was doing. I mean, anything, bend over to pick up a, a crayon off the floor that one of my kids left. And this bolt of pain would just, it was the worst. You would, your whole mindset changed. Yeah. I just got miserable no matter what I was doing. You know? and, and the sad thing about it is, is that it shows up around the people that you love. And for me, yes. I've got so many people that love me with our fans and, and, and stuff like that that have had to see times where, you know, well, Dave didn't look like he was you know, feeling great. He didn't seem like he was this or that. It's like, you know what, man, I'm trying my absolute best I can right now, you know, rolling up to the stage in a golf cart with a neck brace on to do the big four concert. That's right, yeah. Shows that I'm willing to go to any length because I was in a surgery uh, a gown laying in a gurney in an operating room with a morphine drip in my arm on my way to have my spine cut open before the big four show in New York. And, and I, I called uh, before they put me under and said, or before they were going to put me under and said, I have to cancel the show mm. because, you know, I got to have this work done to me. And somebody associated with the event said I was a pussy. And I thought, Oh my God, <laughs> Oh my God. I'm getting ready to have spinal surgery, and you're calling me a pussy? Wow. And, and I was thinking, God, I wish I didn't know who you are, because now I want you to suffer. <laughs> yes, now you must be destroyed. But you played, yes, that's right. But you played that show. Yeah, I figured, you know what, if I'm a pussy, man... I, <laughs> so what, did you pull yourself off the operating table, or had you already been operated on at that point when the show happened? Nope. I told him, I said, you got to wrap me up. You got to take the drip out. I, I'm going, and I'll come back for the surgery. And the guy said, you know that now, based on your condition, where you're at, you know what's going on, the risks that you're taking. And, and I thought, you know, I mean, I've played with the Big Four before. I've played in New York before. I've played in baseball stadiums before. And that's why I figured, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to do it. But when somebody starts saying stuff like Love that, it. somebody that you, you know who it is that's associated mm-hmm. with, you know, certain things that are important in our business that says stuff like that. It's like, man, are, are you serious? That's that's really what you think? Now, what were the risks? I know what they were, but what were the risks? Because you mentioned the doctor said, listen, Dave, if you go on stage and play, you know the Being risks. Crippled. Being crippled, right? Not being able to walk again. Yeah. If you move too far to the left or right, spinal that little injury. bone chip could sever your spinal cord, basically, right? Well, I, I'm not going to make a big drama out of this. No. But, you know, there, there are certain things that could have happened out of it. You know, could have, would have, should have. The thing is, is that I love our fans, and that's the stuff at the end of the day that makes us, you know, <laughs> be able to have those supernatural, uh, superhuman feats where you can pick up a, a truck because you're that's right. underneath. You know, you hear those stories of mom wrestles grizzly, you know, that kind of thing. 
you know, when I, I know you know the feeling, man. I've watched you play. I know when you rock it. You know, the, those guys, they, they just feed that part of you that yeah. that you can't get any other way. I mean, I imagine when, when you're wrestling, it's probably very similar, but, you know, there's something that the music part does along with it too. That for me, you know, I mean, I don't get out there and wrestle, so I don't have the, the no. But it's the same. The it's the same concept, though. It's the same concept. When you get in front of the live crowd, it takes you to a different world. You know, mm-hmm. and, yes. and you know, yes, yes, yes. and and you know, wrestling injured is something that happens. It's just like you know, you you Dave Mustaine could have almost died for metal, right? I mean, that's the greatest headline ever. <laughs> But I, I think that's a bit dramatic. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, when you have the, you know, the live crowd, it's just like if you're feeling a little bit under the weather, if you're feeling sick or anything. It's like when the show comes, yeah. those people are there and you know they're, they're ready to see you, and you owe it to them to to play. And you went above and beyond yeah. uh, on that Funny show. How you don't feel sick when you're doing it either. That's right. I don't know when. I know you've played sick. I'm sure you have. Always. You know, yeah. I, you get out there and it's like, oh my god, I feel like I'm dying. And, and then the lights go off and all of a sudden it's, <laughs> yeah. it's Super Dave and you get out there and it's like, all right, let's tear this sucker down, you know. And, and, <laughs> and then the show's over and it's like, get me to the bus, I think I'm going to puke. You know? <laughs> yeah. but when you're up there playing, you don't feel it, man. It's just like this incredible feeling. See, but it's double for you because you, you're you guitar player and the lead singer. And there's nothing worse than when you have, you know, especially when you go over. I don't know, it always seems to happen to me when I'm in Europe because it's always colder there. You know, it's wet, cold. And if you get that little bit of a bug and you got to sing two or three nights in a row, suddenly that third night you lose your powers. And that's a, that's that's a that's a crappy feeling, man, when you lose that high range. Yeah, yeah. Plus, you got to remember, too, I know you know this. I don't know if very many of your listeners have been able to travel to a lot of the shows that you or I have done over there. A lot of those buildings are centuries old. Yes. And one of the things that's prevalent in some of these old buildings that are damp is they get mildew and they get mold in it. And that mold is, is so incredibly bad for your lungs. Right. And, uh, for example, we played in a place in Estonia. Estonia, right? Mm, yeah. Estonia, like Stony, just Estonia. That's the place where evidently all the the mob you know, got a bunch of supermodels and, and um, all moved out there. And, and there's tons of money and, and stuff like that, but it's all old castles and stuff, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> so we played in a place there. The whole inside of it, I'm looking at it, I'm like, this is full-on black mold here. And, and, you know, it's in a lot of places over there because it's not it's kind of rainy all the time. And, and you know, fans don't really think about the stuff that you subject yourself to or the fact that you're in front of, you know, at certain times anywhere from, you know, four to 20,000 lungs every night breathing stuff That's in right. There. Yeah, yeah, all the germs, you know, just being on the bus and... But uh, yeah. I mean, I'm not a germaphobe, you know. I got the three second rule: if nobody sees me, drop food on the ground. <laughs> you know, as long as it's not stuff that you know, it's yeah. mud or gasoline or stuff. No, I've been on the road long enough to know that rule. <laughs> well, you you mentioned also Wipe it off. you mentioned too about um about the big four shows. How how were those for you, and how monumental was that for for heavy metal and for thrash metal more specifically? They were great. I think that it was a great experience, uh, uh, given the circumstances, unfortunately, with the loss of our friend Jeff and Slayer. Yeah. Um, you know, the, it's, it, there's been um, a lot of ups and downs in, in, in our, our world recently. And sure, yeah. So, so I don't really know what Slayer's uh, plans are right now. Um, but I'm going to be doing something in, in, after summer... Uh, 
we're going to be doing something with Motorhead and Anthrax. So um, I know that they're still playing, and I, I don't know what Metallica's plans are right now. But I think you know, Big Four stuff is always fun to do. Mm-hmm. It just kind of depends on where it's at. I think the Fates deserves a couple of Big Four shows. We've all only had two here. Right, but um, you know they were fun. I, you know, I, for me, I like where it's a little bit more together. You know, when if there's one stage, nobody plays on it. There were a couple situations when we were over in some some of those you know quaint but you know weird places overseas. Is Sofia Bulgaria or something? Two stages, and one will be on perfectly flat ground, and the other one will be on the side <laughs> of a cliff. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah, you're playing the cliff stage today. Yeah. And I, not Burton, exactly. Well, trust me, there's 600 mountain goats there. It'll look full. <laughs> I remember the one time we played a download together. We were on the same day, and it was like there was like garbage was playing, and uh, like uh, I can't remember a bunch of other those type of bands, and you're like, I'm happy that they put us on disco day. <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, yeah, you know, I was really surprised. I thought that as, mu- as much as it's probably going to make people think, I told you he sold out, um, I thought that Garbage uh, sounded pretty cool live. And yeah. Surely is, is uh, well, and that, very interesting. Her, her whole persona is very interesting to me. And that's the thing that's cool about festivals in, in Europe, um, kind of trying to do it a little bit more in the States, but you, know, you do have a very eclectic lineup of a lot of different type of bands, but they all are heavy in different ways, you know, and I, I find that you know, yes. European festival goers will go to the show and they'll watch as many bands as they can in as many different styles as they can all in the same day. Right, right. You know? and, and that's cool, you know, if, if you think about it, when, when it's within a, a certain boundary. So, some of these festivals are so bizarre. I remember one time we played in this uh, festival with it was Oasis, REM, Faith No More, Sheryl Crow, Bo Diddley, and Megadeth. Okay, yeah. Right. What's that song? One of these things is not like the other. That's right. This one was <laughs> all of these things aren't like the other. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? I thought it was a cool show because there was so much music there. Mm-hmm. You think about it. You've got some of the greatest uh, pop and alternative bands, and you've got that funk metal stuff with with Faith No More. And that was when they were hitting on all cylinders. I mm-hmm. loved those guys. Well, yeah, and then and then Bo Diddley, you know, kind of the the, the pioneer you know, of rock he, guitar. He was so macho. I got to tell you, he was so. Uh, forgive me for not mentioning you, Bo. I'm sorry. Um, he was so macho. He was playing that peculiar shaped guitar and busted a string. He just wailed the rest of the show, and my heart went out to him. I was thinking, like, you know, it, does nobody up there care enough to 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 give him mm-hmm. uh, a, a spare guitar or something like that? Or is is you know is there some kind of reason why he doesn't have a backup? You know, right? Or, or some strings or something like that? Man, it's Bo Diddley. I would have ran out there with my guitar and said, "Sir, please just <laughs> touch it. Grace it. You know, I, anything I can do to help you with your performance." I owe you that for my career. Play my Flying V. That would be cool to see Bo Diddley play the Mystic <laughs> Well, you know what? Albert King did stuff like that. There's been a lot of great uh, old blues players that would play the V. You know what's cool, too? Hey, did you see that new V I'm doing, by the way? We've got this thing we're doing. Uh, it's called the Strata, v, D, uh, Strata VMNT. What is um, it? They're making a, they're making a special uh, V for me from uh, Dean, the guitar company. I yeah, play. yeah, we know Dean, yeah. Um, yeah, there's a VMNT. That's the model I I have. Yeah, 
and I saw Stradivarius when we were doing the uh, rehearsal discussions about the symphony, and I called up Josh Maloney at Dean, and I said, hey, man, can you, can you try something for me? Can you make my V look like a violin? Wow. And I said, semi-hollow body, do, do some sound holes in it. Let's really buff the wood up on it. Let's do some antiquing with the, the, the uh, That's finish cool. on it. Let's see if we can do some pressurization of the wood, make it look like it's 300 years old. Let's really go to town on this sucker. And I was expecting him to go like, no. <laughs> right. <laughs> and he said, yeah, sure, man, we'll, 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 we'll make a couple of them. So I'm donating the one that I'm playing that night to the charity for the symphony out here and then keep one for myself is it does it kind of look a little bit like mccartney's hoffner va- bass it's got kind of like the violin gimmick to it uh, totally like that except with balls <laughs> right there you go except for it's yours <laughs> no you, you, you mentioned earlier about how uh, you and Elfson were, were putting together kind of a little bit of a tape to, to fool Friedman and to pursue Friedman. Did you really want him in Megadeth, or was he just the number of guys that auditioned and you thought he was the best? Uh, let me word that differently. We were putting together uh, a tape while we were uh, holding auditions for a guitar player for Megadeth. Marty Friedman was a uh, an entrant, so to speak. Gotcha. In fact, um, Marty had a CD and he had two different color hair, and uh, <laughs> I was not open to even listening to it because of his appearance. Now, um, funny thing was, after I put it in, I l- listened to it and I looked at our manager, Ron Lafitte, and I said, this guy wants to play with us? He goes, yeah. And I said, let's audition him. And he came down, and after he auditioned, I uh, I went over and I called up Ron and I said, "He's he's great, but he's got to change his last name because Friedman doesn't sound very metal." <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, "He goes, he's already an established guitar legend." I said, "Oh well, all right, he's got the job." <laughs> right, but he's gonna get rid of the two tone hair. <laughs> he did. You know, Marty did a lot of things. He made a lot of sacrifices. Uh, it's sad to see some of the things he says after the fact, like that he was so unhappy here because mm. I thought he was happy. But uh, made some great records, know, I was man. Happy. Yeah, well, yeah, you get yeah. There was a lot of fans were happy too. Was it was it hard to um, when when Marty left the band to find? Um, I mean, as a guitar player, I mean, especially with you, you do a lot of harmonies. You guys are very locked in with your rhythms and your riffs. Is it hard to find somebody to replace? You know, your your partner for ten years as far as a guitar player, you know, the chemistry wise. It, I mean, it kind of depends on how much their role is, I guess. You know, when you look at things and you say. Is this a key player? Uh, is this somebody that you know you, uh, you you love playing with? Or is it somebody that you're playing with because you have to, because you want to? Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many different things that, sure. that you you know you have to add to the mix here. Now, a- addressing each one of those things, um, Marty was a great player, and we we had a lot of fun uh, writing together. But, you know, as far as, like, Megadeth being stopped with him not being involved, no, no. obviously that didn't happen. I'm not saying that. Um, I'm talking about the chemistry of finding a new player, like, live. And when you're, you know, obviously, I think when you play with Marty for 10 years, there's probably a certain, you know, unspoken chemistry that you have together. And was it hard to replace that with Chris Broderick originally? I mean, now you guys are, are been together for almost probably 10 years now. So it's there, but right. I'll, I'll, it's been it's been a while. Sean actually has been uh, in Megadeth longer than any other 
drummer has ever been. Chris has a little bit of time to go to be the longest one, but I, I guess in a long about way, I was trying to answer your question and say that you know when you, it, it depends on how much you rely on the guy. I got you. If yeah. He's, if he's, you know, if he's there in, in status or in symbol, you know, mm-hmm. it, it does what he do. Is it something that makes you feel comfortable, or do you need him to do business? You know, you know, Marty, like I was going to say, was you know a guy that that wrote well and and he performed well, but you know when the body's there but the spirit is gone, right. it, you know it, it, it just it doesn't matter anymore. Chris loves being in Megadeth. He's a very talented player, but we've had a lot of very talented players. And I think at the end of the day, if you add in, you know, how do they treat the fans? Chris mm-hmm. loves our fans. He goes out of his way. He's one of the most friendliest guys I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is their songwriting capacity? Well, he writes a lot of really interesting stuff, which Marty did too, although they're different. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that shows up in the music. But we've also not really had the amount of time that we've had prior to each record to do the pre-production, which right now we do. And any record that Megadeth's ever made, ask Ellison, he will attest to it. We have sat through every note and written the stuff, and a lot of times it'll be something that I will say, well, let's write something kind of like this, and it'll be inspired by something. So it's not fair to say that, you know, Jeff didn't write good or Chris didn't write good or that, you know, Marty didn't write good or Poland didn't write good compared to another artist because... You know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. It, it, you know, I take responsibility a lot of times for the the stuff that we write. You know, that that sounds bad, and when it sounds good, everybody gets the responsibility for it, which I think is fair because you know, when you're the producer or you're the leader of the band, if you make the decision and the song sucks, you can't blame somebody else. Right, it's yours. It's all yours. You got to live it. Yeah, own yeah. it. And you, but you, you, the, the current lineup you've had now has been together for at least five or six years, I'd say, right? Correct? Over two or three records. Well, Ellison is the new guy, which uh, you know, a lot of people, they don't get that. But I mean, <laughs> by pragmatics, he's you know the new guy. So I guess you would be able to determine the length of the band by how long he's been back. If right. you wanted to get down to brass tacks. Um, if, if you're going by like you know who has been with the band the least amount of time, that would be Chris. And, you know, he's somewhere near four, five, six, seven years, something like that. Now, I, I, it's not one of those things that I, I, I keep track of, like, you know, sure. how long has he been with the band? Because, you know, it's been such a monumental thing. He just feels like he's my brother, and he's just always been there, which is the weirdest feeling. I see him. We, we have, like, this brotherly kind of picking on each other kind of fun thing. <laughs> it's never mean-spirited. There was stuff that we did with the other band guys that sometimes would get, you know, I'm, I'm almost kind of questionable, like, you know, do, do are you really, you know, poking fun at me or you know are, are you really trying to hurt somebody you know yeah either way when we i would give it or i would take it sometimes we we really kind of push things and you know i mean it's fun to mess around with your bandmates and stuff like that but i've seen people i remember one time <laughs> this guy that we were coming back from spain and and a couple of guys that were on the crew and slayer and a couple of guys my guys drew all over this guy's face with sharpie in a plane <laughs> from spain right to the states and and they put lipstick all over him and tickled his lips with parsley, so he would go like, <laughs> "Yeah, you kiss your lips or whatever." Yeah. So it to- and, and a stewardess gave us the lipstick, if you can believe that. Right. <laughs> well, that's part of being on the road too. Boys will be boys, man. You gotta, you gotta keep they yourself will. sane one way or another, right? 
Well, speaking of what you're talking, you're talking about the you know the, the the trials and tribulations of being in the music business, and you know more than anybody how far you can go in the good and in the bad. I did a, 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 a quick uh, part on Michael Sweet's new solo record, and I saw that your daughter Electra did a, a part on his record too. So your daughter is now getting into the into the music business. How does that feel for you? It's pretty cool. You know, for for me, it's one of the things that that I like is um, being able to see her do something that she's happy about, and and she's very happy right now. I, um, I I've also heard her uh, singing over the years, and you know, she went to school and, and learned how to sing, but she's always been like a you know a singer, singer, singer. Right. You know, not just like singing one line. She knows every word to the song that she's singing, and. And the other thing that, that she has that a lot of people don't have is the pedigree. You know, she's been brought up around this stuff. It's in her blood. It's mm-hmm. in her DNA. She's got the attitude because she's watched me. And, you know, we've gone and seen a couple shows together, her and I. Um, and, and the funny thing is that, you know, I can see and make comparisons between her and some of the people I've seen. And so far, you know, she's got some stage presence stuff, too, which really... It's, it's important. Not a lot of rock stage presence in in country music. You know, Carrie Underwood's got a little bit, but you know, I mean, when you think about people that are really out there and moving, you know, I remember when Taylor Swift first hit this scene. You know, she was very very meek and timid and stuff, and and that's what people kind of think of like kind of happy bopping, you know, kind of stuff. Like yeah. That, but not really, you know, uh, having that whole attitude thing and. So I'm excited about watching what she's doing. We we actually believe it or not, we're going to be moving to Nashville. Wow. We're looking towards, we're looking towards moving to Texas. I wanted to move to Texas, but she wants to go to college out there, and you know uh, that saying, "Happy wife, happy life." So we're moving <laughs> to Tennessee. Well, I mean that's the thing too with you. I mean you can live pretty much wherever your family's happy because you're on the road quite often, anyway. So what difference does it make as long as they're happy, right? Yeah, that's the way I've looked at it. Couple, yep. couple, few more questions. Dave. Is there one guitar solo? I mean, I know it's really hard to. Is there still one guitar solo that when you play it, you think, "Man, this is one of my best pieces of work"? Uh, yeah, I, I, I actually do believe it or not. I, one of my favorite solos is uh, there's two. There's the one in Hangar 18, and there's the one in Holy Wars. But there's another solo that I did that I, I rarely, rarely played live, and uh, it was from the song "The Scorpion." Wow, that that was from the Kick the Chair record, right? Was that um, System Has Failed? <laughs> Remember, <laughs> it's from the System Has Failed. We'll say that. <laughs> yeah. And what what uh, song pl- that you still love to play live that the fans still go nuts for? What's the one that gets the biggest reaction? Ooh, well, that depends. It kind of depends on, on on how long the set is because you know, Megadeth music. It's it, if it's jammed in a festival. Yeah. It's sometimes depending on where we're at, uh, you know, in the lineup, they'll only have so much energy, and they'll let it go in the first song. And then, you know, if we're if we're if we have a short set, we'll pack it full of high impact songs and not really do our our swell. Which, when we have a headlining show, mm-hmm. we'll hit hard and then we'll kind of give it a little break and then climax where we, the songs keep building in intensity yeah uh, in a festival situation if you have you know 45 50 minutes 60 minutes that kind of a situation you don't really have that luxury to do the swell so you just kind of go for it mm-hmm. so when you have to go for right. it and for, for us i think probably you know symphony is very popular hangar 18 is a great opener um sweating bullets gets a really great uh reaction you know, is always huge that's yeah. There's, you got so many great songs, man. It must be harder and harder to put together a set list as you know the more records that you do. 
It, it does get hard. I wonder sometimes, like, how do the Stones do it? But yeah. I guess when you have songs that are two or three minutes long, you can play a bunch of them and, <laughs> and you don't have the same you know, questions. Well, the Stones also don't have to worry about having 45 or 50 minutes at a festival like you just mentioned, you know, especially for you, because you got your five or six tunes that you have to do no matter what. And then you put out a new record, you want to do a couple of those ones, so that's there you go. There's your set's pretty much done already before you even get a chance to even think about it. Yeah, yeah. You know? Dave Mustaine playing with the San Diego Symphony Orchestra April 12th and going on tour, a couple shows in the States with Motorhead. Great to see Lemmy back up and running again, man. It got a little bit scary for him there for a while. Yeah, you know, yeah we all did. We all love him. Yeah, great guy. Still the, uh, the epitome of true heavy metal. And then, of course, going around the world, touring all the way to Europe, South America. Dave, you're always on tour, man. You're always working. Always working, yeah, I think. Uh, always on tour. Um, not, not as much as, as, as used to be. And, and i got to tell you, I'm so excited about getting ready to start writing new material. When we go on the road together, that's when we get time together, and that's when we start writing. So that, that's one of the reasons probably why we tour more than anything, because we all live across the states, and the only time that's we right, yeah. together is on tour. Do you, work, uh, do you so, write on the bus or in the dressing rooms, or how, how do you work together? Sound check? And I, I write everywhere. I've even written stuff when I was, you know, I've, I've had to dry my hand off and dial you know, my, the, the little voice recorder on my cell phone while I'm showering to just go like, uh, 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 into the phone. Because if you don't, you'll forget, right? Sometimes all it takes is five, I, ten minutes and it's gone. Exactly. And the difference between, you know, being a songwriter yourself, you know, when a note is on an upbeat or a downbeat, or if it's, you know, I mean, to people who are the listeners now that don't really know about the sheet music stuff, this is, it's kind of like hieroglyphs to me, too. So yeah. just bear with me. But, you know, when you have like a triplet or a dotted triplet or something like that, it, it makes all the difference in the world where the inflection, it goes from like being a straight rock track to kind of having like a salsa kind of snap to it. Yeah. That's, yeah, and it, that can make the difference. And if you don't get it right, yeah, sometimes that one yep. note will throw it off completely. Yeah, yep, totally. Well, Dave, it's great to talk to you, man, and, and, and much respect. I always enjoy uh, talking to you and, and getting a chance to see you from time to time, and hopefully we'll get a chance to meet up again on the road somewhere. I, I like that, too. Thanks, brother. All right, thanks to Dave Mustaine for an amazing interview. We're really looking forward to seeing his performance with the San Diego Symphony. That's tomorrow, April, April 12th in San Diego, Sold out, but I'm sure they'll do a DVD of it or something along those lines. But now it's time to talk more about The Ultimate Warrior. I posted the number on the Twitter, and we're going to take your calls about your memories and thoughts about the passing of The Ultimate Warrior and his legend and his legacy. Let's go start it off with Maz in New Jersey. Hey, what's up, Chris? How you doing? Hey, I'm doing all right, man. What are your thoughts about The, uh, about the Ultimate Warrior? Um, it's crazy. It's pretty shocking, you know. Uh, he had the Hall of Fame on Saturday. And then Sunday he was on Mania, and then Monday he uh, did his last speech, which was sort of almost like a eulogy in a way. He plays a big role in my life. You know, I grew I grew up watching wrestling. It's like one of the first things I actually started watching with my family. Uh, most kids really grow up on Sesame Street and stuff like that, but I grew up on Hulk Hogan, Ultimate Warrior, Earthquake, Undertaker, you know, Kamala. Yeah, everyone Legion of Doom, you know, and yeah. uh, it plays a big role in my life. You know, these guys are my, pretty much my idols, uh-huh. and it was like, it, like when I heard the news at first, it was like, there's no way because I mean, we saw him at the Hall of Fame, and he he looked 100 percent healthy. He didn't look too bad, you know, like he, right. he didn't look like anything was bothering him. But 
Yeah, just a total shock for for everybody because of that circumstance. You know, like I mentioned earlier, he had just made amends with Vince McMahon and had this amazing weekend, and then passes away the next day. It's just incredible. It's like something out of a movie. Yeah, yeah, definitely is. You know, you you never really expect anything like this. Like he just basically closed a big chapter in his life with uh, yeah with the issues he had with Vince McMahon and the WWE. And uh, I mean, like. I went back last night and I watched WrestleMania six, um, which was one of my favorite matches of all time. I think everyone that grew up in my era yeah. can say the same thing about that. You know? Oh, oh absolutely. No, it was, it was. It was anybody that says that Warrior wasn't a great worker, um, not exactly true. I mean, he wasn't the best at times, but the the match that he had with Hogan was off the charts, and the match he had a year or two later at WrestleMania as well. With Randy yeah. Savage was also uh, was also incredible. So, th- thanks for your comments, Maz, and and we'll all uh, we all agree with you on that. Let's head over to the West Coast. Rob in California wants to talk about the Ultimate Warrior. What are your thoughts, Rob? Hey, Chris. Uh, hey, man. First off, I want to thank you for your show. I love your podcast. Thank I'm you. Podcast as well, um, but. Uh, also, you were very gracious in person. You met my son a couple, uh, actually, it was 2013. You signed a replica belt for him. And oh, cool. I was Thanks. in San Diego when you won the Undisputed Championship. So, oh, nice. So you're, yeah, you've been there for a long time. I appreciate that. Very long time. And so far, uh, so far back in 1988, my dad took me to one of my very first wrestling matches in Burlington, Vermont. And the main event was the Ultimate Warrior versus Dino Bravo. Uh-huh. And uh, that totally just invigorated me and that got me into professional wrestling um i do a podcast about wrestling and i had the warriors autograph from that night in that when i woke up this morning and heard after everything from this weekend with watching them on raw and the hall of fame it just it devastated me um i just i don't understand if if he knew I, that's i'm talking about the, the last guy that just did the interview i wonder if yeah. him and his wife knew something because when you saw her face in the Hall of Fame, she was in tears when she heard the fans chanting his name. Mm-hmm. And then on Raw, just uh, his emotion on Raw, and he had a little bit of a limp when he came down the, down the I, ramp. I noticed that. I, I noticed that he was a little bit, like when you watch it back in retrospect, he was a little bit wobbly, too, like when he, when he put the, took the mask off. And yes. also very, very red complexion, you know, like and, very high blood pressure or something. Exactly. And when he went to the ropes and he tried to do the, do the rope gimmick, didn't yeah. have the energy that you would that you always remember seeing him. Right, and it's not like he's eighty years old; he's fifty four, so he should be able to shake the ropes, you know, a lot still. You exactly. know, exactly. And then they also um, Hulk Hogan put on his Twitter this morning he had a picture of Hulk Hogan, Ultimate Warrior, and uh, Pat Patterson hugging behind oh. the girl's position after Warrior had come back through the through the curtain after Raw. Yeah, well, he had also uh, Stephanie McMahon had also posted a picture. With um, Vince and Warrior doing the same thing in a, in, a, yep. in a real embrace, and that's one thing too. It's like you know, talk about once again just how this is like almost like a script written. In that, I've heard a lot of different um, a lot of different uh, people from from Ted DiBiase to Jake Roberts, all of them saying that they got a chance to have a conversation with Warrior and kind of bury the the hatchet that had been there for years. Jake like, Roberts especially. I yeah. Mean, everybody's just talking about how there was such closure and they were That's right. with their relationship with the Warrior. And then also this morning, the um, there's news coming out of Arizona Police Department talking about the different eyewitness reports that he had clutched his chest and might have had a massive heart attack. But they're, they're just saying on, on their side that it was a, uh, a catastrophic health 
health issue that mm-hmm. that causes death. But it's just it's heartbreaking. And then I have children that are the warriors. They uh, yeah, that's the, that's the saddest part. You know, like I said, seeing, they, it was his daughters take him out on stage for the Hall of Fame was. Uh, it's heart-wrenching. But, well, yeah, um, especially, like, I, I was, you know, for those poor girls, I mean, it's the best moment of their lives, of their father's, you know, at least, at least, at least of their father's career life, and then right. the next day, he, you know, he passes away. So I, I appreciate your, your thoughts, Rob, and, you know, once again, we all agree and feel the same way. Let's go over to, to Mike in Virginia and see what his thoughts are. Uh, what do you think, Mike? Chris, I am totally blown away. Um and I want to tell you something really quick. The first thing I ever saw involving wrestling was Sika eating mustard on Saturday night's main event. And I said, what the heck is this? And that was in 1988, and I've never stopped watching since. Right. So <laughs> yeah. you guys have hooked us. You guys have grown up with us. And I, I'm just blown away. You've got your band. JR's got his barbecue sauce. Foley's got his books. You've got your books. You guys go on and do different stuff, and we follow you, and we embrace you. And we've got aunts and uncles that we only see once a year at holidays. I hear Chris Jericho three hours a week. I hear Stone Cold three hours a week. Mm -hmm. When something happens to you all, even if the media is kind of like, oh, crap on them, they're all fake or whatever, it blows us away because... We're wearing Jericho shirts. We were dressed up like the Warrior when we were little kids. We're we're growing up and growing on with you all. So the message I got from Warriors Passing is make peace with everybody you possibly can. Don't hold grudges because when they're gone, it's really hard to turn around and say, oh, I wish I had a chance. Oh, if if my uncle was here today, I'd tell him I'm sorry. Blows me away. I feel horrible for everybody out there. That man was a childhood hero to me. Yeah, well, and, and to, and to me, and, and all that stuff that you're saying, Mike, I mean, first of all, I appreciate it, and you're right. I feel the same way about, you know, about Metallica. That's why I've always loved Metallica. I grew up with them. Uh, same with, with Warrior. I mean, I was the same as you. I don't know how old you are, but in 1987, 88, 89, when Warrior came on the scene, I was just as transfixed as, as transfixed as you are, and that's not as a as a performer. That's as an as a unabashed fan. And that's why when I was telling the story earlier, but when, when Warrior came up to me in WCW uh, for the one time I met him and said, oh, you're Chris Jericho, you're doing a great job, great work. And I was like, what? Like me? I was a nobody at the time. And for Warrior to say that to me was like, oh, my gosh, like finally, you know, somebody, one of my heroes acknowledges my existence. Like maybe there's a chance for me as well. So I agree with you. And even though, you know, I, I've thought of Warrior a few times over the years, and a lot of times it's it's more of a of a, I don't even know what, you, 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 it's more of a comical type thing or something that he's done or, you know, when he cut his hair. But when you think about where he'd come from and to where he was when he passed away, it's just amazing that, that it happened the day after he, uh, you know, he made amends with, with people and kind of came back into the spotlight. So thank you, Mike, for, for your can thoughts. Say, uh, can l- I say l- one more thing, Chris? Yeah, quickly. Okay. The same guy, the same local DJ, that was mocking The Undertaker and the fans Monday and saying the streets over wrestling's fake. That guy this morning was playing Ultimate Warrior music, was playing his promo after he beat Hogan. That guy was a kid again. That guy oh. regretted how he acted because the next day he was touched by the Ultimate Warrior dying. Well, yeah, it's, it's easy to take the piss out of people, but when something like this happens, you realize just how special uh, you know something like The Undertaker's streak or, or, or The Ultimate Warrior. And that's, that's not you know wrestling is fake or real. That's just from show business standpoint. And from a monumental standpoint, 
um, you know, something that, something that you remember forever. Let's go check in with Michael in New York City. Hello, Michael. Oh, great, Chris. Uh, same thing. You know, I grew up uh, 14 years old, 1989, the Meadowlands, seeing the warrior be Rick Rude. And from that point on, I was hooked to the guy's character. Yeah. Uh, I've never seen a building. You have these little memories of, you know, I, I, I went to WrestleMania this past weekend. Right. I've, I've been to, I'm not even kidding, 20 WrestleManias. Wow. Uh, and um, you remember certain things from your childhood and certain buildings. And that pop, when he beat Rude, will always stick with me forever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I saw the Warrior beat Hogan on television, and it was different, obviously, not being there live. But the one thing I will say more than anything that touches me as a fan is that the Warrior was very private. And he finally allowed us to see pictures of his, to see his children, his wife, his mother, and to see all this kind of accumulate this weekend and for him to pass away is so sad because the man was so private. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And, and now we can put a picture. We now know how his children look like. We now know how beautiful they were yeah. and how proud they were. And to see that a man, you know, can die so young because 54 is young. Absolutely. And, and um, it, it, it devastates me as a fan because very few, you know, growing up as guys get older, you're fans, but it's a different type of thing. Like I loved you and Steve Austin, but you're older. Yeah. But those guys, when you're a kid... You look at them differently. No, absolutely. I mean, I I met Adam West uh, last week in St. Louis. You know, the original Batman, right, and he's you know I don't know he's probably eighty years old. Right. And I've I went and got a picture with him, man, because it's like you remember this guy from a right. special time in your childhood. I was you know seven years old, eight years old in the seventies when they would show Batman reruns. Right. But you always remember that, and it's the same with your favorite your favorite wrestlers or your favorite band. The ones that you got into when you were a kid will always be your favorites, no matter what. Right. And I don't think anyone could appreciate his legacy unless you really were That's right. in that in that era. Yeah. That late eighties, early nineties, you know, I he agree. was always on television. Remember Hogan was only on television every six months on Saturday's main event. Yeah, that's right. Warrior was on like every other week <laughs> on a squash match. He was like the guy. Like yeah, the you ne- title yeah, was you, like you, you the never, world title for T V. Sure it was. And you never saw Hogan on Superstars, which was the Saturday morning show, but you saw Warrior, and that's exactly right. The Intercontinental Championship was the world title for the average TV shows until the quarterly Saturday Night's Main events came on. Exactly, and you got to see him on on a weekly basis, on Challenge, on Superstars, and then you know it's just an amazing character. People always, and I'm so happy he got closure. Yeah, because I remember him. He didn't. He never really did interviews, but I know he did a podcast once where he said he didn't want his daughters to Google his name and that DVD be the only thing they remember him by. Yeah, well, I mean, and that was that was, that was was a legitimate burial piece. I mean, I remember when we were told the interview, it's like, we want to make this, they didn't say bury him, but they was very, it was very uh, clear that this was not a typical DVD where we're right. here to, uh, you know, lionize the Ultimate Warrior. It was more like, you know, we're going to talk about how much of a, of a scammer he was and this and other thing. So if you watch that DVD, it was brutal. And that's the only time I can ever remember the company actually doing a DVD just to bury somebody. So it was, it was you know, like you said, the fact that he got the closure from that mm-hmm. and the fact that he finally got peace with Vince McMahon and, and something for his daughters to always remember, it's very important. And he, and he died a happy man, which is something that we could all you know, if if that happens to all of us, we'll all be very lucky as well. So, thanks, my uh, Michael. I appreciate that. We're going to head over to to Rob, also in New York, and see what he's got going on. How you doing, Rob? 
Hey, Chris, good to talk to you, and just uh, want to thank you for your awesome podcast that helped pass a lot of hours on the road trip down to New Orleans for WrestleMania this weekend. Oh, thanks, man. <laughs> What's, uh, uh, what, know, do you th- what do you think about the Warrior? You know, it's it's utter shock, and I'll be the first to admit, I, I was not an Ultimate Warrior fan. I was a Hulk Hogan fan growing up, so, of okay. course, you know. But I think afterwards, like, being a gay wrestling fan, I didn't like him for his personal beliefs that came out after he was done wrestling. Oh. But I have to admit, it was... Great seeing him come back to at WrestleMania, and we didn't we didn't go to the Hall of Fame. That was the only event we didn't go to this weekend. Uh-huh. But we watched his speeches, and you know, seeing him at Raw on Monday, it's surreal to first get home at you know about one o'clock in the morning last night and to hear this that he passed away after seeing him in the ring. Yeah, like just before we left to come home. I hadn't and, even watched Raw yet. I hadn't even watched Raw with his speech on it yet. I didn't have a chance to. That's how quickly it happened. You know, I've known a couple people over the years that have said things to me before they passed away, and you almost wonder if subconsciously or psychically or spiritually, if there's some kind of, you know, behind-the-scenes thought that makes you know but not know. Like, I mean, this whole weekend was very strange, and the fact that, like we keep saying it, but he passed away the day afterwards, it's like something out of a movie. I mean, it just doesn't happen that way. It's very, very strange, very tragic, but at the bottom line... He did get to make that closure and make those memories for his daughters and his family and for all of us, his fans. So in that Absolutely. respect, at least uh, at least he went out on top, so to speak. Absolutely. And even though, like I said, I may not, may not have agreed with his beliefs personally, you know, he was a big, big figure in the WWE growing up as a yeah. kid. And, you know, to see him that one last time and to know that I was there, I mean, that, that's pretty you know, cool. Yeah, I wish Absolutely. I, I wish I would have been there, too. Thank you, Rob. I appreciate your thoughts. All right, next we want to talk quickly to Mark in Tennessee. What do you think, my friend? Hey, Chris. Uh, hey, man. First off, thanks for taking my call. A uh, big fan of yours. I, I appreciate that. But, uh, yeah, the Ultimate Warrior, he was one of my heroes. I've been a wrestling fan uh, most of my life. And it's just really sad, especially given the events of this past weekend, how it all played out. Um, I mean, he just had the DVD anthology released, uh, the Hall of Fame yeah. induction. And, uh, you know, the appearance on Raw. Uh, so it's, I, you know, I'm just kind of glad that he was firmly uh, welcomed back to the WWE Universe by the fans and the company itself. You know, at least there's that uh, that took place before he passed. Uh, I'm still really just in shock over the whole thing. Yeah, man. I mean, I think that's the, the general consensus from all of us is that it's just such a shock uh, and that he went out kind of on top it's good that we had those last three days and those last three shows to get reacquainted with the fans but it was it was it was not enough i mean i think we all kind of rediscovered our love for the ultimate warrior and then had it taken away so quickly but on the on the very very least we had you know those those few days to remember just how damn special and how amazing the ultimate warrior was and how much of a trailblazer and how much of a legendary figure he was so I want to thank you, Mark. Uh, let's head over to Steve in Philadelphia and see what's going on. Steve, how do you feel? What's going on, my friend? How are you doing? How are you today? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. What are your thoughts about the uh, the tragedy of the Ultimate Warriors passing? Well, first off, I do want to just say one thing. As a member of the Dollar Shave Club and a firm user of PDP Yoga, you have the best sponsors in the business. Hey, thanks, man. I appreciate that. That's, that's That means a lot. Thank you so much for... Uh, for, for trying my sponsors out and for, for buying their products. Well, that'll uh, give me a little brownie points. Thank you. 
Absolutely, just trying to help out. I, I, also, I also want to give you credit for back when the self-destruction DVD came out, you might have been one of the few people that was very complimentary of Warrior. Well, I tried to be. And like I said, when we did that DVD, I don't remember them saying, you know, you must bury Warrior. But the idea was this is not a puff piece. This is not a, uh, uh, you know, a celebration of the Warrior. It's more talking about the issues and the problems. And, you know, there must have been some big ones because that was the only DVD I can ever remember that was actually all completely done just to bury somebody. But, you know, I was an Ultimate Warrior fan. I, I always have been. And, 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 you know, I tried to do the best I could to give the quotes that they could use but still not go out of my way because I only met Warrior one time and he was nothing but great to me. So all I can do is treat people the way that they treat me. I completely agree. And I think what's bothering me the most about his passing was that for the first time ever, we got the human aspect of him seeing his wife, his yeah. kids walking him out. It, it, it truly makes it heartbreaking now that you have that family aspect to it. And as someone who's from a very tight-knit family, knowing now these faces that you can see and you just have to feel for this family, this family that, you know, after having such a high of a weekend, what they have to unfortunately deal with right now. Yeah, you're right, Steve, and I appreciate your thoughts. Um, and, you, and you're right. I mean, it was such a, you know, we did get to see the human side of the Ultimate War because he was such a character, and it looked like he came from space, you know, in the way he talked and talking about other dimensions. And then finally we get to see him as a, as a guy who obviously had just kind of restarted his life after wrestling. If he had an 11-year-old daughter, I mean, I know he finished up with WCW in probably about 98 or so. So uh, just a total shock and tragedy. Let's finish up with one last call from uh, Eric in Texas. Hey, how's it going? Hey, I'm doing good, man. What are your thoughts on the on the passing of the Ultimate Warrior? Well, I'm actually one of the younger fans in the uh, wrestling community, so I didn't get to watch a lot of Warrior. How old are you? Growing. How old are you? Right now I'm 24. Okay, so I was still a wee little tyke. Who? But you had heard you had heard you had heard the legend of the Ultimate Warrior, though. Yeah, it was my dad who really like showed me videos, and when he showed me the match Warrior versus Hogan, you know, title for title, he was like, "Look, this is this came out the month you were born, and it was like a week after you were born this match (laughs) came out." Yeah, that's really cool. So, so when I was growing up watching wrestling, and then he came back for for WCW, it wasn't the greatest run, but at least I got to see him, like... Yeah, get a little taste thing. get a taste of what the Warrior was all about. Yeah, and the thing I really liked about him was so much energy, so much, like... Yeah. So, such intensity, and even well, uh, even during his promos, it's just, like, he couldn't wait to get in the ring and just bust some heads or something. Well, the thing with him was, and why he was so exciting, was he uh, the music would hit, it was like, dun, 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 and you knew he was coming, and then when the beat kicked in, he would run from the back of the arena as fast as he could. And at some of those WrestleManias, I mean, dude, those are are 100-yard dashes. And he would run all the way down, slide in the ring, run back and forth, you know, shake the ropes, and we call it blowing up in wrestling. He would blow himself up before the match, but that didn't matter because that's what you wanted to see from the Warrior. You weren't looking for technical moves. You weren't looking for a picture-perfect dropkick. You were looking for intensity and energy and excitement, and he brought all that. And on the few times when he had those five-star classics with Hogan and with, with Savage, he proved that he could wrestle or at least uh, follow along with what was going on with the match and, and do it well. And and that's you know something that I'll always remember about, about the Ultimate Warrior was – he could wrestle when he absolutely had to, and most of the time he didn't have to. A legendary performer, uh, a legendary uh, character, and from my experiences, a genuinely nice guy, and very smart, too. When you listen to those promos that he did, 
Uh, once again, our condolences from all of us here at Talk is Jericho go out to Ultimate Warrior, his family, his wife Dana, their two daughters, and all of the fans, all of you who, like me, were touched by this amazing, amazing presence and character known as the Ultimate Warrior. I will always believe, I will always believe in the Ultimate Warrior. Hey, thanks so much for linking to Amazon through the Talk is Jericho page at podcastone.com. Whenever you do your online shopping, every time you purchase something that way, Amazon kicks back a few dineros, a few buckolas, a few piggies to this show so I can keep bringing you the pot of thunder twice a week for free. Thanks for hitting that download button as well. In fact, if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend to check out the show and tell them to tell a couple friends and so on 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 and so on. You can even hit that subscribe button at iTunes so you never miss an episode. It goes straight to your device on time. It's trick to rock around to rock around on time on top. Yeah, boy. So stay hungry. Stay hard. We will see you next week for more Talk is Jericho. Who loves you, baby? Yeah, boy. You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcast1.com. That's podcastone.com.